0: X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, July 10th. Special episode today in response to questions about the legislature and what's happening there with respect to the Black Lives Matter movement. We've added a special segment to try to help folks navigate that. So today's episode will be a bit beefier. But first, today, back in the day, July 10th, 1925 a mob forced a Japanese labor crew out of Toledo, Oregon, a community of about 2,500 people in the central Oregon coast. The incident led to a wrongful act lawsuit that for the first time found leaders of a mob guilty of civil rights violations. When the new workers arrived by train on July 10, 1925, mill supervisors assured them that they were welcome in Toledo. Two days later, a local mob of about 50 men urged on by about 200 vocal women and children, forced 27 Japanese people, two with families, four Filipinos and one Korean, onto trucks and cars and drove them 50 miles to the train depot in Corvallis. This event became known as the Toledo Incident. And today, back in the day, July 10, 1965, the Rolling Stones had their first number one U.S. single, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And today, back in the day, July tenth, 1972, Shirley Chisholm appeared at the Democratic National Convention, a public highlight of Shirley Chisholm's historic presidential campaign. Today on The Local, we'll start with your quick six news headlines. We'll then have that special section, a guide to the legislative committee hearings on transparent policing and use of force reform. We'll have Alex Zelensky, news editor of the Portland Mercury, with a look at the protests and the police reform next steps, and an interview with Oregon Representative Marty Wildey on one of the big issues facing police accountability— Qualified immunity, the shielding of officers being found liable for unjust harm. X-ray. First up, it is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. The new Joint Committee on Transparent Policing and Use of Force Reform met for the first time on Wednesday. The new legislative committee heard testimony on the role of systemic racism in public health, civil liberties, white supremacy in policing, anti-fascist movements, protest tactics, as well as police standards for using force and the complexities of prosecuting officers. And that was day one. Yesterday, they heard testimony on models for modern policing, including best practices for recruitment, community policing models, and they did take testimony on qualified immunity. Today, they'll hear testimony on crowd control techniques uniforms and gear, and general standards and use of force. Public reporting suggests that two areas at least will be covered, how police shootings are investigated and whether police should be allowed to use tear gas and other crowd control weapons on demonstrators. And beyond this week, the committee has scheduled additional hearings for July 15th through the 17th. For today's session, you can check out the live stream available on the Oregon Legislature website. Now, after the quick six, we'll get a little more in-depth on how to engage with that legislative process and why so much is at stake. Your daily dose of data, the Oregon Health Authority reported 389 new coronavirus cases. That is a new record in daily cases for the state. That gets us up to 11,188 known cases. The biggest counties were our most populous counties, plus Umatilla County in eastern Oregon. And we had six new coronavirus-related deaths on Thursday. Meanwhile, Oregon hopes to avoid a testing shortage in the future. Officials say the state could run into shortages over the next two months, OHA says it's becoming increasingly tough for the state to compete for materials against states in more dire situations. That includes Florida, Texas, and Arizona. Some of their intensive care units are close to reaching capacity due to a surge in coronavirus patients. Nine labs at Oregon hospitals have already been impacted by supply shortages. One said it can no longer process tests in-house. There is some good news. It's that so far, a shortage of testing kits and supplies doesn't appear to have impacted Oregon's numbers. Nearly 40,000 residents received test results last week, and that is a weekly record, nearly double the tally from a month ago. As for Washington State, OBB is reporting that COVID-19 cases are overloading the Clark County staff. For most of June, the county averaged a little less than eight cases a day. But in late June and early July, they've had several days with 30 cases each. As for Washington State as a whole, they now have 38,581 reported cases and 1,409 deaths. Wash your hands, cough on your elbow, wear a mask, stay socially distanced. And the struggle at the Oregon Employment Department continues, still trying to process self-employed workers' unemployment claims. According to the media briefing with the acting director of the Oregon Employment Department on Wednesday, a rise in COVID-19 cases is impacting the health of department employees themselves. During the briefing, David Gersenfeld said since the beginning of April, seven employees have tested positive for COVID-19, including five in the past week in four different locations. On top of that, in the same briefing, it became clear that the pandemic unemployment assistance claims, the PUA claims, have become the department's latest wrench in the cog. You still need to process about 61,000 initial PUA claims to meet its August 8th goal. As of now, if your PUA claim has not yet been processed, you should not plan to receive your benefits until at least August 8th. They've had about 98,000 applications. Of those, about 23,000 have been paid. He announced a language assistance hotline for people who need help filing initial or weekly claims. That number, 503-606-6969. In economic news, maybe some positive news, House Speaker Tina Kotek and Senate President Peter Courtney on Thursday made a proposal. They're pushing for $500 million in emergency relief checks to Oregonians still waiting on unemployment benefits from the Employment Department. They said they're going to ask for $35 million in federal CARES Act dollars. And the Legislative Emergency Board will meet Tuesday, July 14th to consider that proposal. And a little bit of good news, gas prices are likely to remain low in Oregon as long as the pandemic persists. On average, gas in Oregon costs 60 cents less a gallon than it did a year ago. Lower demand for gas means prices will probably stay lower. And remember what we talked about just the other day, the Portland City Council did vote unanimously on Wednesday to cap restaurant fees charged by third-party delivery services. What does that mean? Effective immediately, third-party delivery services like Grubhub and Postmates can't charge more than a 10% commission and can only charge a 5% commission on pickup orders. They'll face a $500 fine for violating the ordinance. During the pandemic, local restaurants have counted on takeout and delivery in order to stay above water, but to make those deliveries they often rely on apps like Grubhub, Caviar, to name a couple. And many smaller local businesses have little bargaining power against those companies. Before the cap, some of the services charge restaurants up to 30% in delivery fees. The ordinance is intended as an emergency order, meaning it'll stay in effect through the state of emergency plus 90 days. And a historic ruling from the Oregon Court of Appeals. They ruled on Wednesday in favor of a person's right to legally change their gender to non-binary. The ruling requires circuit court judges to grant non-binary as a gender marker if a person has legally followed the process. Oregon birth certificates and driver's licenses already have a non-binary option, but those are administrative, not legal changes. The decision reverses a 2019 ruling from Lane County Circuit Court Judge Charles Carlson. Judge Carlson had denied a petition from Jones David Hollis a non-binary Lane County resident, to change their legal designation to match their gender identity and thus make sure they were seen as a non-binary person in the eyes of the law. The Court of Appeals decision overturns that denial. It also sets a precedent so that other non-binary Oregonians won't face the same hurdle when changing their legal gender designations. In a press release, Hollister said, I am so thrilled. I'm thrilled for not just myself, but for all non-binary Oregonians. In the coming weeks, Hollister expects to receive paperwork from the court with their correct gender marker, and Hollister celebrated by having cake with their spouse. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Here's your special segment about the special committee that will inform the special legislative session on matters of transparent policing and use of force reform. And a shout out to all the activists who are engaging constructively to have your voices heard and make more progress on these issues than at any time in recent history. In recent weeks, we've done a half dozen interviews. We've talked to about a dozen sources. What we know is there are huge discussions of decisions being made in the Oregon legislature, impacting police practices, budgets, rules, and more. But things are happening so quickly and with so little advance information that fewer citizens and unelected humans are getting engaged. So whereas 700 people showed up to testify at City Hall on the Portland police budget, nowhere near that number have engaged on the half dozen policy ideas that will impact police bureaus and sheriff's offices in every one of the 36 Oregon counties. So here's some context on what's going on and how you might engage if you so choose, organized by the five W's and the H of journalism. When? Right now and next week. The co-chair of the committee told us public hearings will be next week, the 15th to the 17th. The special session is likely to be called with little advanced warning after that. Last time, there were only about two weeks of notice. So the when is kind of right now. What? There's some big policies being pushed and discussed. Here's a list from co-chair Janelle Bynum.
1: These are the potential concepts that I wanted to cover, and I'm going to cheat off my little sheet here, okay? To close the loopholes on arbitration, the bill that was 1604, there were people that wrote in that said, this isn't strong enough. Okay, Senator Frederick wanted that bill to pass as he had passed it so that he could get that and check that off the list, incremental progress. The second was use of force, banning chokeholds, ensuring the the health and safety of anyone that you've arrested or is in your uh, custody. The third is peaceful protest. Uh, banning the use of tear gas and understanding what the range of non-lethal munitions looks like and deciding as a community whether we want to continue that whole range of choices. We needed to close up the duty to intervene and establish what the responsibilities of supervisors was because we didn't get that. There's a piece in the Colorado bill, I think it's SB 20-217, which authorizes the Attorney General to investigate patterns and practices of discrimination and disparate outcomes. There's a a piece in that bill that I think is just beautiful legislation that helps us look at an agency level. Right now, we have no ability to look at agencies that are mistreating people. The next one was um, community policing and independent review boards you know, exploring that concept, uh, giving independent police review boards teeth um, and all the tools that they would need. The demilitarization of police, including their uniforms and, and training practices. Looking at number seven was hiring practices and standards, looking at statewide site standards and polygraphs. And then the next was um, how we use and recruit reserve officers. So that was the initial list of open items that we felt like we had. Pretty exhaustive, but we're going to start hearings next week to get a baseline of information.
0: According to activists, here's some biggies to highlight. Ending qualified immunity. That didn't make Representative Bynum's list, but we talked to Representative Marty Wilde about that very thing in this very episode. Changing Oregon's use of force statute to make sure that force is used only as a last resort after other options are exhausted and truly independent investigations, such as by the Attorney General's office. For people who followed the George Floyd case, there were not arrests made by the officers until the Attorney General took the case away from the local DA. And the question of whether to ban not just limit techniques that restrict air or blood to the head, and more generally the demilitarization of police, including by ways of uniforms and equipment. You might notice that leaves out the question of funding, the question that drew so much attention in City Hall. Note that 90% of the state general fund goes to the following three things, education, health and human services, and corrections and prisons. So here's a helpful mnemonic, the state educates, medicates, and incarcerates. There are state police, but they are not a very big percentage of the budget prisons are. Oregon spends more on prisons than on higher education. So far, legislators have not prioritized prison reform in these special sessions. For that issue to be picked up, it will likely wait until the next legislative session. Where is this all happening? Well, it's the state legislature. That's normally in Salem, but now it's happening online. Before getting into how to engage, let's start with the essential, if unmusical, schoolhouse rock. Bills start in committee. They can end there. Usually it takes five steps. Step one, start a bill in a committee. Two, get it passed on the floor in the chamber where it started, like the House, for instance. Then three, you got to go to another committee in the other chamber. In this case, let's say the Senate. Then four, you got to pass the full Senate. Then five, you got to get it signed by the governor. So to get something passed in the Oregon legislature, you have to win all five of those places. To stop something, you only have to win in one of those places. That's a key reason why it's hard to change laws. This time, though, there are some different elements to the dynamic. First of all, they're using a joint committee. It's called the Joint Committee on Transparent Policing and Use of Force Reform. So if that committee moves a bill along, it will go to both the House and the Senate floor for a vote. Also, usually the legislature wouldn't be in session until next February, but now there is a special session inspired by national and local efforts to protect black lives. And another way it's different. Once a bill gets out of this committee on the floor, it will be hard to vote no on and nearly impossible for a Democratic governor to veto. Once a bill gets out of this committee, it will be very hard to vote no on and nearly impossible for a Democratic governor to veto. That means whatever this committee sends to the floor will probably pass and become law. This gives the People of Color Caucus in the legislature huge power, especially Representative Janelle Bynum, Senator James Manning, and Senator Lou Frederick. They sit on that committee. Bynum and Manning are the co-chairs. Which brings us to who? A bit more about them. You can listen to our interviews with Janelle Bynum and Lou Frederick in recent episodes of The Local. We're still working to get Senator Manning scheduled. Representative Bynum is an engineer by training. She and her husband now run four McDonald's franchises. She serves the Happy Valley area. In talking to her about the last special session, she worked to get broad-based support for a package of bills. After amendments that Representative Marty Wildey acknowledged weakened the bills, Bynum worked alongside district attorneys, sheriff's offices, civil rights lawyers, and police chiefs. She acknowledged that she hadn't heard as much public engagement from activists and reformers as in the city, for example. And she made the point that she was being asked to carry a lot of the burden for a problem of systemic racism that she did not create. Senator James Manning is a former corrections officer, police officer, military veteran, and the former chair of the Oregon Commission on Black Affairs. He was named the Senate co chair after the previous special session. And Senator Lou Frederick also serves on the committee, a former newscaster. He worked for 13 years at the Portland Public Schools. He was a longtime bus project board member, and he submitted 59 bills on police reform over the past 10 years. There are other members of the committee. There are also other members of the POC caucus, you can find them on OLIS and you can Google it. Which brings us to how. How can citizens and activists and unelected human beings engage? The first might be communicate with the People of Color Caucus in the legislature. They will notice if there is grassroots support to go big, if they're allies, not just among the folks who lobby the legislature all the time. Second, posting on social media and tagging legislators can also get the attention of those members on social media, particularly where those posts are persuasive. A little more traditional, calling and emailing legislators. Funny for me to call emailing traditional, particularly one's own legislator. You can find your legislator at OregonLegislature.gov. You can also testify before the committee. The info is on the OLIS website. What's OLIS? That is the Oregon Legislative Information System. Not to be confused with the OLIS that is the official chart of the highest selling albums in Poland. That's true, by the way. So Google OLIS, O-L-I-S, and with a few clicks, you can find the committee hearings and the information about how to testify. And why? Well, it's our democracy, folks. We can throw stuff at the TV screen about presidential politics. We can send angry or clever or even informational tweets. We can also engage in the people's business. Thanks for listening to that portion, and thank you, democracy. I'm just a bill, yes, i
2: Alex Zelinsky, news editor of the Portland Mercury, is back with an update on protests and police reform next steps.
0: How you doing, Alex? How many nights have you been out over the last couple of weeks?
2: Oh, uh, not, not a ton recently. Um, I uh, went out Fourth of July night and uh, uh, another night the, the week before, but things have slowed down in our on-the-ground coverage of these protests.
0: How come the protests aren't ending? They are different. Rose City Justice had a shakeup. Uh, what's the editorial decision to say? Listen, we've covered that a lot. We got to pivot resources elsewhere.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't say we're pivoting resources elsewhere. I feel like we're doubling down on like you've, you've been on the ground. We check in every week to see what's going on, um, and then we put resources towards like understanding how the police uh, are. Legally allowed to, to, to act the way they do, um, kind of looking more into the groups that are involved, uh, you know, filing a lot of kind of uh, records requests to find out more about the different relationships the police have with different members of the law enforcement. Uh, I think, you know, we, we spent a good amount of time collecting data <laughs> by being there and by seeing kind of what's going on and speaking with people, and, and now, um, you know, putting more energy towards. Zooming out a little bit and talking about what's actually going on here and um, and w- what the bigger implications are, but none of it means that we're not we're not down there, um, you know, virtually every night. I've been checking in with a lot of we have some freelance reporters and independent uh, journalists who are who are definitely down there every night and um, with eyes on the ground. And it's really really lucky as a community to have those people continuing to show up so we can kind of follow what's going on.
0: It seemed to me that when Rose City Justice started their marches, that it started offering uh, some uh, greater focused uh, efforts in the protest, it seemed like the narrative changed a little bit. It got away, it, the narrative moved away from whatever stuff was getting broken and getting the uh, energy uh, focused on the point of the protest. And it, then it seemed, and this is just my impression, and I haven't been down there a bunch. Uh, I've only been down there during the daylight to see aftermath. And I've, I've been there because of you, because I'm able to see online videos, etc., tracking what's happening. So I, I say this with curiosity, not with an exclamation point. But the. <laughs> But when, uh, and then when when Rose City Justice broke up, that might be a, a too brief way of explaining it. But when they sort of had their shakeup, it seemed to me that stuff started getting a little haywire. And I talked to their uh, new co president as they reorganized, who said, "Yeah, that's about right. Stuff got stuff got worse after we uh, stopped being on the case." Is that your impression? Has there been a, a, any shift in what's been happening with the protests?
2: I mean, it's tricky. There's something. I mean, th- there has been a shift in um, you know the amount of uh, kind of infighting, I'd say, in in the protest groups that kind of detracts from maybe what the original uh, effort was and the original point was. Uh, I think that was part of the Rose City Justice kind of issue as well. There were folks who were not really on board with the way that that, that, that group was leading protests, and then Rose City Justice was not on board with the other way. I mean, I. mean, I think it's really easy to zoom in and say like, hey, these are, you know, get into the details of why um, these groups are agreeing with each other, but I think it's also important to put it in historical context that, you know, traditionally a lot of, in the the past, a lot of these kind of radical movements or progressive movements, they um, can kind of fizzle out after there is uh, this kind of infighting and there is this kind of division and it's interesting seeing that play out on the ground. I think there's a lot of Organizers who are acting kind of independently, some of them who are, um, you know, just coming down or people are coming down to see what's going on who don't really know, um, who might not be on board with kind of some of the, uh, you know, tactics and like acceleration that some of the protesters um, have or want to get engaged in. There are some people who are just going kind to of show up because they think it's kind of a party. I've been down there before, and there's, you know, some folks who are just like kind of like drinking beer and sitting around. And and so it's just interesting what a space like that um, draws. And, you know, it's not a monolith. Um, it's frustrating for a lot of people down there who I think are still really committed to the original um, push to uh, protest, you know, police brutality and, and uh, racism within the criminal justice system. I think some people uh, believe that uh, you know, acting um uh aggressive and kind of um vandalizing and, and kind of you know throwing things with the police is, is the way to continue to get attention and to continue to keep to this movement going. I think other people disagree. Um it's not my place to really decide what's right or wrong in the way that people protest, but you know, it's certainly turned into it's metamorphosized over the past weeks into a different um, protest. But I think I mean, I know there's a number of different more organized protests that are on and, and rallies that are on the horizon. I think this is still chugging along towards um, you know, a movement that can be participated in in many different ways. Um, if that's going to an organized uh, event, if that's going just downtown or to the Justice Center every night, if that's you know, uh, a calling in to your state legislature to make sure that they put energy towards a certain bill. Um, it's, a, it's a collection of, of energy.
0: You said you wanted now and with your reporting while you're still staying, uh, as you said, virtually on the ground and also going physically out there from time to time. You're trying to also put your focus on the legal context, the legislative context on how use of force is, in fact, applied by the government in our state and in our city. What's happening? How are you tracking the joint committee hearings in the legislature and how the reform, accountability, transparency, use of force discussions are happening there?
2: yeah it's interesting i mean so far there's only uh there's only been one day of committee hearings for this um, specific joint uh, committee there's three days uh, planned for scheduled kind of testimony from experts on on policing and uh, police accountability and use of force um, uh, at the capitol right now yesterday's it's, it's pretty fascinating how jam packed <laughs> these schedules are and how much um, legislators seem to want to get done in about three days. Or not done, but just kind of digest. Um, yesterday, there were about, I don't know, 10 different experts that were kind of crammed into two hours to break down a number of different points. Um, you know, go quickly go over um, the history of kind of white supremacy uh, within police bureaus, uh, quickly kind of run through what Antifa is, um, and also get into um you know kind of the the legal functions uh, there was a um a district attorney i think with Marion County who went through this is what happens when a police is is uh charged with use of force uh with illegally using force against someone and what the uh, what a district attorney has to really prove um to get to the point to prosecute that officer and how hard it is and so i think uh Right now, lawmakers are really digesting a lot of different information um, from all of these different pieces of kind of what makes up the criminal justice system. I, you know, I frankly think it's um, they would benefit from maybe a little bit more time on each topic. But it is a a good moment to kind of have this all on the record for at least the public to go back and get kind of um, you know bites of information about different pieces have they scheduled the public
0: hearings that the public can actually go and testify is that public yet and how do people engage with that
2: that's not yeah that's not public yet i'm not sure when those um hearings will be right now it's just i'm told
0: it's going to be next week i I, yeah it was invited testimony this week and apparently public testimony next week and in talking to representative janelle bynum Uh, I've got a couple I got a couple little pieces for your future scoops Uh, according to Janelle Bynum there wasn't as much her comment and she said this on our interview which you can feel free to check out and quote anytime you want of course the uh, there wasn't as much engagement with from the people or by the people and she shared your concern on timing by the way there wasn't uh, there wasn't as much engagement by people in the legislative process as there was in the city process and that sounded to me like a clarion call for activists to be engaged in the city process excuse me in the state process and she also said said, right. yeah, the public testimony is going to be next week. That's what she said. Uh, and, and then we today talked to representative Marty Wildey, who is testifying at ten thirty today about, uh, about qualified immunity. And he's got a bill to try to, to try to change qualified immunity that hasn't yet been, didn't make the list, the list of six right. in that first Absolutely. round. And that's a, and that's a, that's a big, big one. I don't know if that's already on your radar screen.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a number of them that are kind of coalescing right now. Um, I, I'm not sure which ones will actually make it to to become a piece of legislation. Um, That one I've heard about, but I think we'll be probably hearing in the next week or so um, kind of takeaways from these conversations that we're having and what's to be expected when there's a next uh, session.
0: Well, I'm so grateful. I am so grateful. We are so grateful for your reporting. It's been fantastic. We hope we can do this again uh, next week. If you have to bow out, I hope we can find another time to at least share info. But we really appreciate you, Alex.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'll be here. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Be well. Representative Marty Wilde of Oregon House District 11 and Jefferson Smith are up next with reflections on the recent special session and an in-depth look at qualified immunity.
0: Marty Wilde is a state representative. He represents House District 11. Earlier this month, I guess, actually, excuse me, it was in the end of June, The legislature put forth at a special session. I call it the special special session. It's the first special session. They're going to have another one. And they put forth six bills. Four and a half of them happened. All the major amendments essentially weakened the bills. But they passed some bills. One of the big bills they didn't pass was called qualified immunity. Marty Wildey is working on that now. We're going to talk to him about it. Representative, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me on, Jefferson. Pleasure
0: so first of all, correct me on or, or amplify helping people understand the geographic reach of your district.
3: <laughs> well, I call it the Kalapuya District in honor of the uh, tribe who lived there. But it goes, uh, I say, from the uh, University of Oregon down to Creswell around Springfield and all the way up into Lynn County to the outskirts of Lebanon and Sweet Home.
0: So what are you wrestling with right now? What's the, first of all, let's, not, let's set aside qualified immunity, which I want to get to in a minute, but even just what you're wrestling with as representing your district in the time of a global pandemic and a time of national, uh, a national uprising has been my favorite descriptor. Uh, what is that meaning for your day-to-day? Uh, how's that for your family? How's that for your district?
3: Uh, I think the hardest part is not being able to communicate in person as, as much. Uh I knocked on when I first ran, I knocked on 11,500 doors um, uh in my first run for office and uh, I really miss that. It's uh not as easy to get out and, and go to public events and uh chat with people and catch them that way. So I spend a lot of time on the phone as I am with you uh trying to to hear from people and uh you know that's that's uh, that's one of the biggest challenges. And I think for my district, um, you know, it, it's uh, a lot of uncertainty. I have both Lane Community College and the University of Oregon, so there's a lot of uncertainty as to what's going to happen in the fall. Um, and then um, in the rural parts of my district, I have uh, a lot of agriculture, and they have a lot of questions as well. The markets are disrupted by this, and so we're just trying to get everybody through. But I, I tried to Tell folks is, you know, this is likely to take another six to nine months before it's all resolved. Um, but then it will be. And so we just need to keep an eye on the long game and keeping everybody um, working together to keep everyone healthy and safe.
0: Let's talk about police accountability, the special session that just happened. Is it unfair for me to describe the major amendments that were made to the bills as, generally speaking, and I might even say universally speaking, weakening the bills, at least from a, perform, a reformer's, haha, performers, at least from a reformer standpoint?
3: Uh, yeah, I think they were, um, they were weakened a bit to achieve consensus on it. I, we did, I think, receive Republican votes on all of them. Uh, in fact, uh, I think uh, some of them were unanimous or close to it. But, um, So I think in the context of the time available, um, that was a a good goal. But I think we all recognize that they were just a first step and that we want to continue this conversation. And uh, I want to thank Senator Manning and Representative Bynum for letting me work on this project.
0: When... uh describe for us the dynamic of the discussion. Was it mostly to get Republican votes? Was it to get the coastal caucus? Was it just because there are people within leadership who have relationships with uh, district attorneys I mean, district attorneys and, and county sheriffs and chiefs of police have real influence with lots of legislators around the state, right? I'm not just talking about Portland, Multnomah County, but each, you know, every sheriff, every police chief, every district attorney can reach their state legislator.
3: I don't know uh, that I would view it in terms of political wrangling as much as um, appreciating that there are some complexities um, in these issues. Um, I mean, I don't like tear gas much, but there are times when it's the least worst option um, and trying to find the right place for those. I think um,
0: so you don't think you don't think political influence had anything to do with the decisions. i I, I, I will say starting out representative, it's hard for me to buy that.
3: <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that no that, uh influence. I would say I think we there was a lot of collaboration to find language that would work for everybody. Um, you know, and we have boy, uh at least uh three police officers I can think of, or former police officers I can think of off the top of my head, two of whom were chiefs of police. Um, Carla Cluso and Ron Noble and then uh, Chris gorsuch was one as well. So, um, you know they've they've got a, a perspective in terms of um, what it's like on the ground and helping the rest of us understand that. You know it's a it's a, a diverse legislature in terms of experience, and so I think we do try to listen to each other. Um, now, uh, clearly, uh, interests on the right were less interested in changing the status quo in drastic ways than interests on the left, but. Um, I think we got some important work done and i think we all recognize it's just the first steps. uh and what, so what was the most important
0: work what was the most important work that got done
3: um from my perspective i would say it was the duty to report misconduct um, by other officers um what we see is um police officers um most of whom are, are uh take the, the the right view of policing um, But operating in a culture that um, did not encourage reporting when people didn't uh, reach those professional standards, when people didn't abide by it. I I look at it this way, uh, Jefferson. Um, Is the primary purpose of the police to protect the public, or is it to control the public? And I hope you and I and everybody listening to this believe that their job is to protect the public, um, that they should protect and serve, as we traditionally say. And I think uh, I I would say we all um, subscribe to that view, at least everybody on both sides now that I've talked to. And so the question then becomes in that context, you know, what can we do to uh, policy-wise to keep the police closer to that mission Um, and honestly to frankly get rid of officers who don't subscribe to that view um, because that's the fundamental uh, philosophy of policing in our country is that the police are there to protect the public.
0: You said it was a first step, and this is, I find, an interesting piece of the dynamic because that was one of the big uh, consensus comments from uh, House leadership, from the People of Color Caucus in the House, from, uh, I think Senator James Manning said about exactly the same thing. I, said, I think Senator Lou Frederick, who's also working on these issues, been working on for a long time, has, I think said almost exactly the same thing. It's the first step, it's the first step. And at some level, it is absolutely accurate because there already is a commitment from the uh, from legislation of the governor to take another crack at it, and y'all are going to be in I uh, think y'all are in hearings this week and next week to get ready for another special session. And another, I also when I hear it, I have heard it. I've said it before. And it was like, well, in the hopes that it's another, you know, it's the first step in the hopes that somebody later, either the same somebodies or some different somebodies will do something even better in the future. But maybe when the future comes, the landscape will have changed. Maybe there isn't as much there won't be as much fervor on the streets. Maybe attention among progressive folks will have moved on to climate change, which is another big issue or wealth disparities or what's, you know, the implementation of a important housing plan what is the fierce urgency of now you feel versus the uh, wisdom of incremental change, iteration and learning from what you do along the way?
3: I think obviously there is a fierce urgency and we see that on the streets every night um, to, to make some changes um, and to, re- again, refocus the police on protection as opposed to control. Um, you know, for me, I guess that's best. Um, a good example of that is you know when there's a confrontation between the police and uh, people who are protesting uh, you know do the police view you know any crimes that are happening as the problem or do they view the protest itself as the problem and when i see police chasing down protesters when i see them disrupt uh, attempting to disrupt a protest as opposed to attempting to uh, hold up you know people who are committing crimes accountable that tells me the police are being used as an instrument of control, not an instrument of protection. So um, that's really an important thing to change and to change quickly. And I appreciate the work they're doing. I I, uh, I think the goal of the meetings over the next two weeks is to take uh, additional steps as soon as we can. Uh, I think that's likely to be in another special session. Um, I think over the longer term um, there are you know, more complex issues and more subtlety and nuance that we may want to embrace. And my testimony today to the committee will, will be essentially that, that there are things that we can do right now to address qualified immunity. Um, and then there are things we should consider over the longer term. You know, how can we, what I want to do right now is make sure we have um, just compensation for people who are injured by the police. I think that's critically important. Uh, over the longer term, we need to think about how that system will, you know, um, circle back to police training uh, and police culture and sort of build those connections in so that we're, you know, fixing the whole system, not just um, the end result. So I guess that's the way I view it is work we can do right away and then work we're going to do, uh, but may take longer to have conversations.
0: And you're testifying today before the committee that's, is it a joint committee at this point or is it just the House committee?
3: committee,
0: Before the joint committee on what police accountability and transparency, what are we calling it?
3: Uh, Let's see. They call it the Joint Committee on Transparent Policing and Use of Force Reform.
0: And you're going to be pitching what? You're going to be pitching a reform to qualified immunity. Is that about right?
3: Right. Well, and let's put it this way. Um, When we talk about compensating people from injuries from the police, if you view the role of the police as to control the public, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? But if you view the role of the police as protecting the public, it absolutely makes sense. That we would want to make sure that people are compensated, and since that is the view that I represent, uh, and I believe uh, everybody in the legislature does as well, the question then is: Is how we are compensating people fair? And I think the answer with qualified immunity is no. And you know, if you don't mind, I'll give you a, a, a few quick examples. So here are three examples where compensation was denied to people under um, qualified immunity. Um, so, an officer decided to release a police dog to attack a surrendering suspect who was sitting with his arms raised. Uh, found qualified immunity, no liability. An officer uh, shot a child while intending to shoot a non threatening dog near the child and ended up shooting into a group of children and injuring a child. No liability. A corrections officer decided to pepper spray an inmate, which he admitted was for no reason whatsoever. That, again, denied under qualified immunity. So clearly those are examples where we think, well, geez, that's not, um, that's not fair. Those folks are clearly, uh, victims of police violence. And what can we do to compensate them? Um, so, you know, the, the fundamental problem we're running into is it's a federal, um, principle, right? It applies in federal courts. So we can't control what the federal government does. We sincerely hope that Congress fixes it. Um, uh, or the Supreme Court, but until then, we want to make sure that our courts are fair uh, and that qualified immunity does not apply uh, in our courts. That kind of
0: conduct. What's the political path? Can you get this done in the next special Please. session? Can you get the support uh, members of the House and the Senate and get the <laughs> governor to sign it?
3: Yeah. yeah uh, well, uh, listen to my testimony at ten thirty today. Uh, yes, I think there are things we can do. Um, I think uh, certainly we should make a statement that qualified immunity should not apply uh, in law enforcement cases in our state courts. I think that uh, the, the doctrine has been taken too far, and if we want to replace it with something that's clear, we absolutely should. Um, but we definitely want to say it doesn't apply in state courts, and then we have to consider uh, fair compensation in, in our state courts. Uh, I do want to bring up some of the problems we have with recovery limits. Um, you know. The maximum recovery for all damages for personal injury in state courts is $769,000. That may sound a lot like a lot to you and me, but consider that there was a case in the Washington County shooting where the jury believed uh, this man who was shot in his own yard by police officers who did not identify themselves, um, you know, they thought his injuries were worth $7 million, and that was reduced to just over $1 million because of those caps. So I think it's important that we change that as well because, um, you know, it's important that people receive fair compensation for their injuries. Um, So uh, that's, uh, I think what we can get done uh, is at least that. We could certainly make it fairer to victims um, so that they can receive a fuller recovery. uh, And we can certainly say we don't want this in our state courts. Over the long term, I think there's some important steps in terms of police training. Uh, I think there's some important steps in terms of, You know, as we've now established a statewide data bank for police misconduct, making sure that when there is a settlement or a judgment uh, involving an officer's conduct, that the uh, DPSST considers that in light of their license Um, as a peace officer. uh, Not saying that every mistake should result in somebody losing their license, but I definitely think that DPSST should consider it when there is an incident of
0: excessive force. So, Representative think- Wildy, thank you so much for spending the time this morning. Really appreciate you, and thanks for your service. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks to Alex, and thanks to Representative Wildy for joining The Local, and big thanks to our production team. Editor Wizard, Will Romey, Writers and Voices, DJ Ambush, Kate Kay, Co-Executive Producer, Emily Gilliland, Writers, Julie Oppenheimer, and Joy Polchik. and I'm Jeff Smith thanks for original journalism and research by the lund report the oregon health authority covid19.healthdata.org the oregon historical society portland business journal lament week pamplin media opb the oregonian the columbia and the statesman journal by portland street roots koin kgw and news partners Bridgeliner, and the portland mercury thank you for listening to the local your hometown well today in a little more than 30 minutes thank you for subscribing do give us a review five stars if you can and share with a friend And again, thank you, democracy. Talk to you Monday. X-Ray.